Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Center of Everywhere, a podcast series developed by the Center for Rural Policy and Development. I'm Kelly Ash, Research Associate for the Center. On today's episode, Marnie Warner and I are speaking with the Minnesota State Demographer, Susan Brower. The conversation covers how the process of redistricting maps are drawn and approved differ on paper versus the reality, how much of rural Minnesota isn't growing in population, but isn't really declining either, and ideas on how rural areas might have access to more accurate data if the census surveys turn out below standards. And welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast. Our guest today is Susan Brower. She's the Minnesota State Demographer. And uh, welcome. How are you doing? It's been a busy couple weeks, I suppose. It has. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks. So we finally got the long-awaited redistricting maps. Every 10 years, of course, we go through the census. We did that in 2020. It was a little weird, a little different, Um, but we finally got the data. And then uh, we finally got our redistricting maps two years later. I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about how the redistricting process works in Minnesota and why it's so important to do? Sure, so in Minnesota currently, uh, it's the responsibility of the legislature to come up with the new maps. That's what's on paper. Uh, That is not what has happened for several decades now, including this time around. Um, What happens when the legislature uh, is divided, one, one, uh, for example, the Senate uh, being Republican and the House being uh, Democrat um, majorities, uh, oftentimes they can't come to an agreement on what the map should look like. Um, so with that kind of being in place and having been in place for the last few decades, what happens is it tends to get kicked over to the state courts. Uh, they draw maps uh, based on the population changes and those maps are adopted instead. Um, This time around, uh, because uh, there was a delay in the release of the census numbers because of the pandemic, everything got pushed back when when we got the data got pushed back. And so there was this compressed period of time uh, that the legislature had to draw these maps. Um, and some folks filed a lawsuit to kick off the process in the courts so that that was happening at the same time that it was happening in the legislature. So it was a strange, I don't know in Minnesota if we have kind of what's on paper as the process ever really (laughs) truly coming to fruition uh, since the courts have decided these maps for um, so many decades now. Uh, But this one was particularly strange just because the courts were holding hearings um, and uh, taking input and drawing their own lines at the very same time the legislature was doing so kind of in anticipation of of that kind of um, uh, standstill. So it's almost like we've fallen into a pattern that everybody agrees to the house or the 
Democrats drop their maps, the Republicans drop their maps, somebody sues and it goes to the courts. Yes. And so this time somebody just sued preemptively. We just said, maybe someone better sue now so we can get this process started. That's right. And the deadline to get these out uh, are, are, is February 15th um, of the year ending in two. And so there really was a hard deadline. That deadline is in place so that the elections can be in place in time. And so, um, yeah, this, this is, I think I agree with you. I, it feels like we kind of all agree that this is what's going to happen. Um, people tend to kind of chuckle because we all, we all know like, yeah, this, this is how it's going to go. Sorry, my phone rang there. Um, and, um, and, and it went that way again this time, but in a more compressed way. Yeah, there, there was none of that you know, every 10 year discussion about should we formalize this into some kind of a panel made up of, you know, this person and that person and judges and things. It was like, oh, just get it to court. <laughs> That's right. Um, but there, there was discussion. I'm not sure if there was discussion last time around because I wasn't as close to it, but I know that um, this time around, there was a group of citizens who, who wanted, um, or of residents, I don't know if they were citizens or, or not, a group of residents in Minnesota who wanted to form an independent panel like other states um, have done. That didn't happen this time around. It kind of remains to be seen if if that's something that will happen in the future. But for now, this is this is Minnesota Minnesota's own kind of flavor of redistricting that that we've fallen into this pattern with. Right. And so now with uh, we have these maps with these redistricting maps, and that's having an a, an impact on legislators because they're they're anxiously looking for these maps because they want to see am I still in the same district you know has that district moved under me and has uh, one of my fellow legislators ended up in the same district as me because this has all sorts of implications for the elections coming up right that's right um I talked to, I was at a conference last week uh, speaking with legislators and I could almost just not, it was so fresh. It was about two days after the maps had been released. And I really don't have any other than, other than helping people understand the data, how to use the data, how to access it. I really don't have any um, other additional role in actually drawing the line. So I had to tell legislators um, I know there are a lot of feelings about these maps. There are feelings. Uh, I, I, we're not going to talk about the maps today. We're just going to talk about the data. But you could tell it was really raw, um, you know, just two days after they were released. I mean, they've, they've spent time building relationships with people in their district. And so um, I'm sure it feels very much like the rug is pulled out from under you when you have a, a part of your district lopped up, you know, the people that you've come to know, the meetings you've gone to, um, that's gone. Um, and you can, in some cases, welcome new new areas, but um, I know it's, it's, it is a big change for folks. And especially if they're, if they're um, put in a district with another incumbent. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, that's more likely to happen in greater Minnesota because the districts often have to get larger because mm. the population centers are growing faster. And so the districts there will shrink to get them down to the target population. 
and the districts elsewhere have to get larger to get them up to the target population. And so in populated areas, you're more likely to end up with new empty districts. Does that, that sound right? I think so. You know, I haven't looked enough to look at where, you know, I looked up and saw that there were, you know, seven pairs of incumbents in the Senate put together, 12 pairs of incumbents in the House put together, but I have, I didn't look at how they were distributed across the state, but just the mechanics of it would make sense to me um, that, that you would see that more in um, larger districts, uh, less populated districts, except for the fact that even if you have a district in a metro area that doesn't need to change or needs, <clears throat> excuse me, or even needs to shrink, um, it may have to change just because its neighbors need to change. So um, no district is safe, even if it's exactly the right, <laughs> exactly the right number right. of people. Yeah. Well, that was just released. I believe it was, uh, I'm forgetting their name, Marnie, is it Carsey? Oh, Carsey Institute in New Hampshire? Yeah, the Carsey Institute. And okay. they had an article that said, uh, rural America uh, declined in population for the first time in, I think it was history, right? Hmm. Um, which is interesting, right? Because we always talk about rural America losing population. But actually, this was <laughs> the like, first census uh, where it actually <laughs> happened. Um, I'm curious, uh, in rural Minnesota, or I should say in Minnesota in general, um, what did you see with the, the the new census numbers coming out? Like, did you know all of greater Minnesota lose population? I, I kind of know the answer to that, but I'd be curious from your perspective, you know, where do the population shifts and where are they happening? particularly in greater Minnesota. Yeah. So if we're thinking about the area that we often call greater Minnesota, which is the 80 counties outside of, of the seven county metro, um, where we saw growth in that area was, was mostly in the metropolitan areas of the state. Um, so the Mankato area, the Rochester area, um, not the rural areas per se, but the metros in greater Minnesota really did see strong growth, except for Duluth. Duluth was the one metro that really, it stayed about the same. It was really pretty stable. Um, and then we also saw growth in some of our larger towns, uh, our larger cities uh, in greater Minnesota. So not just the huge metros, the Mankatos, the Moorheads, you know, um, some of our, lar our larger cities grew in greater Minnesota as well. Where we continued to see population declines were really in the truly more remote areas in the townships of our state. Um, and that that's a pattern that's been going on for a very long time. But what I will say is when I talk to folks about growth and decline, I think what they have in their head for the most part is there's this great emptying out of some of these rural areas, this great hollowing out. And it's much more like a trickle. It's not, I, I think people have this sense that there's this tremendous growth in metro areas and this tremendous emptying out in rurals. It's much more a picture of stability for the most part with a little bit of losses in these truly rural areas and then the growth is just big and um, punctuated in those metro areas in contrast to that stability and that very small decline so that's i i keep seeing articles uh saying you know 
the decline, the decline, the decline. And really, yes, that happens in some of our, our areas. In fact, I have a map I'll share with you. And if you want to stick it somewhere where your listeners can, you can see specifically where, where those losses happen. And they did happen in very small numbers in the most rural areas of our state, in the southwest um, kind of agriculture areas, in the northern part of the state um, that's very sparsely populated. Um, but it's not it's not kind of an exodus like people often have in their minds. That's not really the picture that we're talking about. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think that's one way we've kind of tried to frame it up too, is that, you know, even with the redistricting numbers, it really isn't about this Uber loss of population. It's rather about where the growth, the substantial growth in population. So kind of everybody's pretty much staying the same, except for these few spots that are really seeing a growth. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like even in the Central Lakes region of Minnesota, you see some population, oh, yeah. growth, not huge, but you know, even their districts had to get a little bigger, despite the fact that they had population growth, because they're just not growing as fast, right? That's right. That's right. And so, uh, um, much of the redistricting isn't about population losses. It's about accommodating that big growth because we, we have the same number of seats uh, each decade. And so you have to accommodate where that great big growth area uh, was or areas were. Yeah, right. Um, and I always kind of imagine it too, if you go to a national scale, Minnesota itself isn't a fast growing state. Like we're kind of a slow growth state, right? So even we're, when we talk, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, so I'd say we're just, we're just a hair above the national average, but that includes all these really fast growing states and then states, some states lost, a few states lost population this decade. Um, and the rural states uh, that don't have major metropolitan areas, um, you know, grow much slower than we do. So I'd say we're kind of average to the slow side of things just because of where we're located in the U.S. Right. And so even the redistricting within the state kind of mirrors the number of U.S. House representatives that each state is given where Minnesota grew in population, but we almost lost a, a House member because we didn't grow fast enough compared to Arizona and some of these other states, right? So yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Well, so we um, have had discussions, I know, Susan, about kind of some of the issues surrounding the most recent decennial census. And I know the U.S. Census Bureau always works so hard on this stuff. And um, I continue to rely on their numbers and they do great work. Um, but I know this particular census had its kind of intricacy, or I should say nuances around it, its challenges. Um, and before we get into like, I know the bigger topic, which is uh, differential privacy, I did want to talk about, you know, while the census was being implemented, there were these issues. We had the pandemic. We kind of had what I would call like political shenanigans surrounding the census about mm -hmm. who we're counting and not counting. And mm -hmm. the U.S. Census Bureau overall had budget shortfalls, right? They were not super well funded for this round of the decennial census. And so this raised all those questions. And I know like a lot of data folks, policy analysts, people like us, you know, were a little bit nervous going into this. Um, I'd be curious, you know, I know you sit on kind of a, a committee that overlooks the decennial census and gives feedback and input. Um, how have some of those issues outside of differential privacy, how have those worked out? Have you seen anything concerning or has everything worked out okay? Um, I would say that um, we don't know yet. <laughs> um, in some, for, we know that 
for some of the things that we do know, uh, I can speak to those and then I can talk about what we don't know yet. Um, we know that Minnesotans responded to the census in an amazing fashion. We are first in the nation for self-response rate. I will not ever miss an opportunity to bring that up. <laughs> um, and so, and, and you know, uh, that, uh, sorry to interrupt. What was our percentage? It was seventy something, right? Yeah, seventy-five point one. I think was the percentage, and sixty-seven percent. Yeah. Yeah. So quite a bit above the national average. We're always above the national average, or we historically have been. Um, but we really expected our response rate to go down this time around, and it went up. And so that was a fantastic surprise. There were all kinds of people involved in, you know, efforts to get the word out. Um, so I would say we know from past censuses and past surveys, when people fill out the form themselves, we get better data than when we have to rely on census takers to go out. Um, and, you know, maybe they find the people at home, maybe they don't. Uh, if they aren't able to reach a household member, they rely on what a neighbor has to say. They rely on a mail carrier, on, you know, a guy on the street. I don't know. They rely on somebody who may know something and those kinds of answers may end up being, yeah, I think two people live there. Maybe there's maybe one now. I'm not sure. Just put two down, you know. So you can see that when people answer themselves, we get much better data. So I'll say that our response rate bodes very well for having better data. That high response rate was much, much higher in some areas and much lower in other areas. So I won't say across the board, we saw very high response rates, but for many parts of the state, we saw the response rate go up over the decade. And what we don't know yet, uh, the Census Bureau does some uh, surveying afterwards to get try to get a better read of who was missed. And that's what we don't have back yet is it's supposed to come out at least for the nation, I think in the next couple of weeks to see, you know, are there groups that that were undercounted, I'm sure there will be but we'll get a better sense of just how much uh, people were undercounted in the census. Um, and then the only other area of concern I would point out is that, especially in some college areas like around Winona, um, we saw quite a bit of losses where we have college populations. So that remains a concern for me, especially in greater Minnesota campuses, a little bit less, at least it's a little bit harder to read in, in the more metro areas or in the Twin Cities in particular, but some of those uh, state colleges campus campuses that have um, that have uh, college populations that live off campus those are areas of concern just from looking at um, changes that we wouldn't expect to see what about i know there was some conversation too just about the number of i think it was housing units i know you had a conversation with oh, ben yeah. winchester about that and some of the kind of you know, looking at the 2010 data to the 2020 data, there was quite a significant change in housing units. Um, and that has a lot to do with the way they kind of gather their information on how they're going to essentially send the survey out. Um, has there been any update on that side of things? No, that's still an outstanding question too. So the question is, was there really that big of a decline in the number of housing units in greater Minnesota between 2010 and 2020? Or did that decline happen more gradually 
um, beginning sooner than 2010 and we just didn't capture it till 2020? Or did it not happen in all, at all and it's erroneous? So that is still uh, a question that's out there, whether that initial, um, that foundational count of where people could potentially live is, is accurate. Um, and as, as Ben pointed out, he thought he saw um, areas that declined faster than people would have expected in some areas. So the, the yeah. question is, is that, is is that real? Uh, is it a is it a measurement issue or is it um, you know a, a real concern? Which it, it sure could be. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know the next topic uh, for us kind of data nerds we kind of get huffy puffy about is the differential privacy <laughs> thing, and I kind of want to set this question up with um, an article I read. I think it was uh, Bloomberg Bloomberg City Lab. Um, Okay. I don't know if you guys read that. They always do a nice job. They have a lot of kind of data stuff. And and uh, they were talking a little bit about the decennial census and some of the accuracy issues that might be popping up in particular on differential privacy. But they really set it up in this interesting way where they talked about, um, if everybody's familiar with uh, Liberty Island, in New York City, right, where the Statue of Liberty is. There's two people that live there. Oh, OK. And and. Um, uh, so in 2010, it had two people, but it used to be, as you know, the census has always added a little bit of noise to the data for data privacy. I think they called it um, exchanging or swapping, right? Yep. yep. So it was two people and then their race and ethnicity, they had listed as Asian, but they were actually white. <laughs> and so that was a swapping. They got the population right, but they swapped out the ethnicity and race to, in order to kind of fool people who those two people were, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so now with the most recent 2020 data, um, between 2010, 2020, a storm actually wiped out their house. So there's no one inhabiting uh, Statue Island or Liberty uh -huh. Island anymore. Uh -huh. But uh, the 2020 census says there's 42 people living there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> they're, camp they're camping. <laughs> so, and it has to do with this differential privacy adding yeah. noise into the data. It was actually research done by the University of Minnesota. I believe the Population Center kind of dug into it. And they're like, okay, well, something's going on here. Um, so that kind of gives you like an introduction of, you know, to folks listening, differential privacy puts this noise, particularly into places where it could be really easy to attach identity to the data that you could see in a table uh, presented by the 2020 decennial census. Um, so in this case, it went from zero people, which is reality to like 42 people, which was just the noise added. Um, how have you seen that conversation playing out? I know the Census Bureau has gone through multiple iterations of differential privacy, trying to get it right. So both adding noise while also not hurting so much on the accuracy side of things. Uh, any updates on that, Anne? Um, yeah, so the data got much better uh, before the release and up through the release of the, um, of the redistricting file. And that's everything that we have so far is just the redistricting file. Um, and so through these many iterations, these many stabs at, at producing files that would work well for folks, Absolutely, we saw improvements in accuracy over, over that time period. What we got still is not what people expected. And we have been fielding um, you know, phone calls and having conversations with folks for the last several months, uh, particularly mayors in greater Minnesota of small cities who say, my data is wrong, how do I fix it? 
um, you know, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to say when you when you know the count or in in the case of most of the problems that folks were having with the data, it wasn't as much that they were worried about the total population, but the occupancy rate. So they were just getting some wacky occupancy rates. Um, for example, mayors would call and say, I know my occupancy rate is 96%. They would know because they know the households, they know, you know, who's living where and when something's empty, they know this stuff, just they don't need to look at the data table to know it. Uh, they'd get the census data back and it would say, you know, 50% and they would be really worried about, with good reason about, you know, will this be used for any kind of funding, any kind of, will this have repercussions um, in the future? And so that's kind of what we are still working through with um, local officials and also, you know, with the Census Bureau, that's feedback that we've given the Census Bureau that says, you know, yeah, it works pretty well for larger cities, but we have thousands of small towns and, and small cities in Minnesota, literally thousands, <laughs> um, for which they don't have the, the one time a year, um, very, very accurate data. So it is an ongoing issue. It's something that we really have pushed back pretty hard with the Census Bureau about because of our concern for the accuracy and just knowing how these data are used by folks. Um, we know that it's really important. For the data that will be released coming up, um, they're still working out what that's gonna look like. We are about to see kind of their first set of demonstrator or, or one person in my office is on a team that will see, you know, it's very secretive, but we'll see a first iteration of these data. Um, so that's, that's coming, but um, um, it will be impacting, you know, the age data that we get, the race data that we get, all the things that we kind of use as baselines. Um, for the next 10 years. Um, so it, it's the nerdiest thing that raises my blood pressure, I think. <laughs> if, there, if there's anything nerdy that does it, it's that. <laughs> well, I completely understand after years of me putting trend lines together. Yeah. I'm just like, I can I add this now to a trend line? That scares me. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> yeah how do you make a case for you know, everything from writing grants to economic development to attracting businesses when the data you have now doesn't fit with the data you had previously. Yeah, I mean, I think it just, I'm, I'm hoping we will still see a turnaround that we will see better data coming out of this next round uh, of releases. But if we don't, if this is truly the course that the Census Bureau will take, I think it's just going to take a lot of education because people have in their minds that the census data are the gold standard. That's what we look to. That's what we rely on. It really, it's sad, but I think it takes, it takes some more education for grant makers and for people who are submitting their grants, who are using these data to understand that there's just a lot more fuzziness, less precision than we're used to having, and that we have to make our decisions accordingly with, with the absence of that precision. One thing I've heard some people throw around is the idea of, uh, you know, in the context of small communities applying for grants for programs, I'm thinking USDA rural development, right? Um, 
even our initiative foundations, lots of philanthropy organizations in the state, you know, a lot of them are are looking for and expecting more data around equity and uh, race and ethnicity type questions, right? Um, I'm curious, you know, your opinion on the potential of the state or somebody offering grants to communities to do their own survey work when needed. Is that something that's realistic or is that something that's just, I mean, it's just so difficult and challenging that might be impossible? You know, I don't know. I haven't thought about that as a solution. It sure may be, um, but I just wonder if there are other administrative data that could be pooled, if that would make more sense uh, to come up with estimates that aren't wholly based on the decennial census. Our office, for example, puts out population estimates each year. Um, if we were to produce something based on administrative records or based on blended years of other surveys. I could imagine kind of going that route. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, if we were to provide, uh, or we being the state, not me, we, <laughs> if the state were to provide funds for people to do their own survey work, it seems like there would be so much of a learning curve for each person to have to figure out how to, how to do that. Um, so, I guess I've thought more about how what alternative or supportive data products could we put out there that would help fill out the picture. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, I'm doing a project with SLEDS data that oh, yeah. also mixes in some deed data. Yeah. And, you know, I tell some of my friends, like, how's the information and you know, that the, they have access to, it's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Of, like, I don't <laughs> mean that in like, a, oh, the government's tracking us. But I mean, there is there is a lot of information that can be pulled together to kind of figure out where everybody's at. And uh, even the all payers database in the healthcare, Minnesota Department of Health. Oh, man, that would be a, that could be a great potential for tracking or <laughs> tracking numbers and things like that. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think um, we haven't, had to turn to those kinds of uh, data sources as kind of people working in policy as much and in the public realm because we've had the census data, but you know corporations have been using it for years. So it's it's uh, the capability to have that data outside of the federal government is out there. It's just a matter of how we jointly access it and how we use it and so forth. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, Susan, if you ever your uh, the state demographer's office ever gets to a point where you want to advocate to get access or have more resources, let us know. We will be on the front lines for you <laughs> to get <laughs> yeah. that information. So uh, we would have happy to make a case of why it's important for rural Minnesota. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we're getting, we're absolutely getting there. It's the, the question is if we're coming up to this point where we have all these data where, that we've had in the past, we've always, and we haven't even talked about the American Community Survey yet, but the same thing holds true for that, um, that if what we're seeing because of concerns about privacy is a degradation of the data that we used to have access to, I think we're going to have to look for we're not going to just go without. We're going to have to figure out what what else can we use um, that that works for us. Yeah, I appreciate hearing that because I think a lot of us on the data side are like, man, is this it? Is this the end of the golden era of data access to things? So that's I'm happy to hear that. It seems like it should just keep going up, right? That's what we've been hearing. We've just been hearing like more and more data it keeps coming online. We have more access. We have more computing power. We have more 
everything. And, and now in part because of that, I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why differential privacy was introduced, these protections that the Census Bureau is putting in. And we're all for these, these um, protections. Um, they were put in place in part because they were worried that people could uh, re-identify someone, not based on the census alone, but by combining it with other data sources that are out there. So that's kind of, this prompted this to begin with. I may be going too far down the nerdy hole, but that was, <laughs> that was you know, what prompted this to begin with. And so we're all for privacy. We get in rural areas, especially where there's fewer people, easier to identify folks. Uh, but the concern is just that it's that that we've lost too much um, and and very valuable stuff um, for for this potential threat. So, well, Susan, thank you so much for your time. Um, really appreciate you talking to you today. Um, it's always great. When should we have you back to get an update? Maybe towards the end of the year, and we'll know more. I'm happy to come anytime. Yeah, um, I think I'm not sure when the next release will be out, but we'll hear more about the quality of the data coming up pretty quick here, I think. All right. You've been listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Everywhere.